It may or may not surprise you to find out that sometimes I have no idea what I'm doing up here. This week, while continually struggling with the like upcoming section of Ephesians, it's one of those times trying to find the right place to break the text up into preachable parts or trying to develop a coherent outline to, to follow along and all along in the process finding these tangents that uh, like every point I want to draw from the text has other points that you have to explain first. Can I just tell you, sometimes it's a struggle and that's good because it makes me keenly aware of how inadequate I am to the task. So now with the self-pity or self-condemnation out of the way, one of the reasons why this particular point in Ephesians is difficult is that it is a transition point in this letter. Chapters four through six just have a dramatically different feel than chapters one through three, but everything that we're about to read in the next few chapters of Ephesians is grounded in what we've already learned in chapters one through three. So this morning, with your permission, I say that, like, what are you going to do about it now? I want to present just a kind of reintroduction in the second half of Ephesians. And I know we're halfway through the book already, and I know we started this series in Acts with an introduction back there and another introduction when we got to Ephesians. So this is like the 87th introduction of the sermon series. But we're going to start this morning by reading Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, although I don't intend to preach that text in depth until next time. But as we read it, in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, I, I want you to think ahead of time and, and note, listen or, or look for some specific things. Note how Paul uses a transition. He uses the word therefore, right? Because of that. So the last half of Ephesians is all something that flows out naturally from the first half of Ephesians. Remember also how he has stressed God's sovereignty earlier in the letter, right? You were dead in sins and God, because of his elective choice, has brought you to life and he's called you to faith. That calling is very important starting right now. And also remember who he's writing to. The church at Ephesus had just dramatically different ethnic and cultural backgrounds and He's shown that when Jesus has reconciled them to God, he's also reconciled them to one another and placed them in the assembly. Right? So, so listen for all of those things. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 1, says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering." Forbearing one another in love, enduring, and I'm sorry, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would please bless this reading of your word and we thank you, Lord, for 
recording it through your servant Paul and for preserving it for us and give us an understanding and a a focus to make practical those things that we say we believe in our lives, that we would embrace Jesus in faith and then live out that faith for his glory. Forgive us of our sins, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We often say that Paul's letters begin with the doctrinal and end with the practical, right? They begin by saying, here's what you should believe, and then goes forward to, here's how you should behave. You know, of course, I I hope, that that is a generality, right? We would never argue that as Paul's being doctrinal, there's no practical point to it, or that as he's being practical, it's uh, completely devoid of doctrine, right? We know that's not true. But Ephesians is cut from that same general mold. Ephesians 1 through 3 are very doctrinally based, right? God's sovereignty, man's depravity, the the reconciling unity that's found in Christ. Those are the themes of the first half of this letter. And it's also very common for as as, as Paul is doctrinal and then moves to practical, it's very common in his letters that as he transitions, he has a a doxology, right? A formal statement of praise. And we noted last week, Paul's prayer, how it ends chapter three, the first half of the letter in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, amen. And with that doxology, Ephesians 4 then opens with the word therefore, right? Because of that. Here's how to put all of those those matters of faith, the things that we believe, here's how to put them into practice. And now, if you have any experience with Paul's letters at all, you know to brace yourself for the next three chapters because the Apostle Paul is about to get all up in our business, Every part of our lives, right? Your, your life as a church member, your life as a husband or wife, your life as a child, your life as a servant or employee, your life as a, a master or employer. The practical commands are going to start coming at like right, machine gun speed. If you glance down, start at about verse 22. Put off your old manner of life. Verse 24, put on the new man that God created in righteousness. Verse 25, stop lying and tell the truth. Verse 26, be angry without sinning. Verse 27, don't give place to the devil. Verse 28, stop stealing, but instead work hard. And then chapter five, right? Wives, submit yourself to your husbands. Husband, love your wives sacrificially. In chapter 6, children, obey your parents, servants, work hard, masters, be fair and and honest. It's all very direct. It's all very practical. And it's all based on verse 1 of our text this morning. I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called, right? Walk worthy of your calling. And if you ask, well, okay, Paul, what does that look like? 
just read chapters four through six. That's, he, all of it is him telling us what that worthy walk looks like. You'll find plenty of very direct, very practical descriptions of what it means for you to walk worthy of your calling. Before you know, delving into these chapters, I want us to just focus on some thoughts from the text. Five fundamental truths of walking worthy. Five fundamental truths of walking worthy. First off, this is no cookie-cutter Christianity. You know cookie cutters. You, you take them, you press them into the dough so it takes shape. You end up with a bunch of absolutely identical cookies. Well, Paul's letter to Ephesus and the New Testament as a whole, it is not attempting to make the disciples of Jesus all identical to each other. Just out of curiosity, do, do any of y'all remember the Hare Krishnas? Right? You don't see them much anymore, but at one point a few decades ago, it was very common to see them in airports or in parks or in other public areas. And really, Hare Krishnas are just a, a little sect of Hinduism. But when someone joined, immediately the goal was conformity. Right? What did they look like? Well, okay, you're, you're signing up, you have to shave your head. You have to put on the identical orange robes as everybody else. You have to become a vegetarian. You have to get into the group. You have to start chanting together with people all the divine names. Everybody look alike. Everybody dress alike. Everybody eat alike. Everybody speak alike. That is cookie-cutter religion. On the contrary, Paul writes this letter in a way that recognizes that Every one of us has a unique life, a personal calling, and we are to live out our own personal calling in this world. Not all of us are husbands, not all of us are wives, not all of us are are children or servants or, or masters. Despite what the world says, Christianity is not trying to make us all identical and cookie cutter, right? Listen to what he says down in verse seven. But unto every one of us, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. There he's using that term grace, not in the sense of saving grace, but, in the, but the, the grace, the undeserved favor, which God gives specific and individualized gifts to those who serve him. Earlier, Paul Use the word that, that way for his own life. When he says back in Ephesians 3, verse 8, grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles. Later on in verse 11, he's going to talk about that gifting and say that God gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Everyone has a personal calling. It is unique. This is important because early on in this practical section, When you look at what we've just read, Paul's arguing for unity, right? Keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, he says in verse 3. He knows that true unity is not achieved through uniformity. It's it's not achieved through, okay, everybody put on the same robe and get the same haircut and you're going to achieve unity. No, husbands and wives and, and children and Jews and Gentiles and servants and masters, being a disciple of Jesus does not look identical for every one of us. Walking worthy of your calling 
is going to require recognizing that God has called you in your life, in your unique life, and it's not going to look like everyone else. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to read you verses 7 through, 17 through 20. He says, But as God has distributed to every man, as the Lord has called every one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called an uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. In other words, what he was saying, Jews don't have to become Gentiles. Gentiles don't have to become Jews. He goes on to argue in that chapter to say that slaves don't have to become free in order to serve Christ because a a slave to a man is already free through faith in Christ. And a free man who comes to faith in Christ, he doesn't have to become a slave. He can live in that freedom, recognizing as he expresses that freedom that he is being a servant to Jesus. He, He says married folks don't have to become unmarried to serve Jesus. Single folks don't have to become married to serve him. You can serve him just like he called you. He knew what he was doing when he called you. This is why Paul in this letter to the Ephesians, he goes through husbands and wives and children and and, and slaves and masters, right? You have a calling. You have been given through grace the measure of the gift of Christ. So don't think that this is an argument that your life has to become identical to everyone else in the church. But do read these chapters asking, what does it look like for me to walk worthy of my calling in Jesus Christ? This is not cookie-cutter Christianity. Second, there is no promise of personal safety. As the Apostle Paul directs them toward a a worthy walk of life in following Christ, Note how he sort of front loads the expectations in verse one. He says he is a prisoner of the Lord. Here's how the the NIV translates verse one. I think it does very well here. It translates it as, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. If you or I were writing this, don't you think we would have been tempted to write If you would just walk worthy of your calling, life would be so much easier. Things would get so much better for you. You know what we would never write? We would never write, as a prisoner of the Lord, I beg you to walk worthy of your calling. After all, look at what it's done for me. I'm so happy I can... I can make a little music by shaking my chains. Do not imagine that this calling to walk worthy contains within it some promise of personal safety or peace. Following Jesus, listen, following Jesus is risky. It is dangerous. It is countercultural. 
That's true today, and it's been true at every point in humanity since he came. In Ephesus, we already know that manifested itself in a citywide riot against the Christian faith. Right? The whole city in an uproar. How dare you upset our status quo? We like the way we are. If you will follow Paul as, as Paul follows Christ, and that's what he argues for, follow me as I follow Christ, you might end up being a prisoner of the Lord. A prisoner for the Lord is what he means there. And why would you be a prisoner? Well, <laughs> The means by which you would offend the world is really not ideals that people should find abrasive, but they do. You walk worthy if you are a a husband who finds that self-sacrificial love for your wife is what the Bible commands. You follow that, you're going to be disturbing to people. If you're a wife submitting to the leadership of your husband, you are going to offend society's sensibilities. For those of you who are children, I would encourage you, you just go get into a group of friends and talk to them about how we should all be obeying our parents and see how popular that makes you. If you're an employee, being a dedicated worker is not going to win you any favor of your co-workers. If you are an employer, treating your workers fairly, generously, with respect, right? That's not the American business model, really. For none of us, none of us will find that when we proclaim Jesus Christ and his glory is the most important truth, we're not going to find that that is appealing to the rest of the wicked world around us. The world is preoccupied with self. Right? Take a selfie. Find yourself. Love yourself. Defend yourself. Do what makes you, you happy. But this letter says you've been called to something greater. And even in the face of a world that will mock you, start a riot, throw you in prison, walk worthy of your calling in Jesus Christ no promise of personal safety. Third, there's no switching the order of this. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul writes chapter after chapter at the beginning of his letters about doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. It's that he knows full well doctrine leads to practice. What you believe determines how you behave. Not what you say you believe, but what you actually believe determines how you behave. There was one day, it's it's been over 30 years ago, driving between Washington and Eureka, there was a car accident that happened right in front of the vehicle I was riding in. There was this really nice red sports car. I think it was a Camaro. that like zipped by us in the other lane, pulled back in front. Everything was fine, except that there was a farmer over at the side of the highway in a field that was, and it was during a, a drought, and he, he's plowing, and there's just wind carrying dirt and debris over the road, and it didn't look like a big deal until you actually got to it and found out your visibility was about 15, 20 feet, There was an accident up there inside of all of that that we didn't see until we did it going full speed. And, you know, the 
we, we get to that and the first thing I see is a red sports car flipping over the windshield. And it lands in the ditch and we stop and I get out to try to help the guy. He was conscious, couldn't really get out on his own. I told him wisely, look, you need to relax and don't move. I, I heard somewhere that if somebody's broken their neck and you try to move them in an accident, you could paralyze them for life. And I remember distinctly, he looked up at me and said, I just filled this thing with racing fuel and I think it's going to blow. I believed him. What I believed determined how I behaved. Turns out he hadn't broken his neck and the car didn't blow up, but I'm not certain he appreciated how far I drug him into the field before I decided to let him go. If you believe that you are a sinner and that God is rightly offended with your sin and has prepared the eternal torment of hell for people like you, how will you react to that? How are you going to behave except to repent of your sin and to trust Jesus? If you believe that God sent his son to die in your place, to give you everlasting life, to give you, as Paul says in this letter, to set you with him in heavenly places, what you really believe is going to show in how you behave. If you truly believe your best life is yet to come, you are not going to be preoccupied and fret over pain and, and prison if that's what this life brings. If you believe that Jesus has reconciled you to God, then you are going to look at the other disciples of Jesus and you are going to see past the external differences and recognize that you are united in God's family. What you really believe about Jesus and what he's done is going to matter in how you behave towards the other disciples of Jesus. If you believe God is worthy of your worship, you'll find reasons to worship him and not reasons not to. If you believe the church is the organization deemed to bring glory to God, as Paul described at the end of chapter 3, then you will be an active participant in the work of the church because you love Jesus. Even if it's hard, you'll, you'll verse 3, endeavor, right? You're going to put effort into keeping the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. There's no, there's no switching the order of things here. If you could switch this order, then the Apostle Paul might have some point written a letter that says, okay, here's how to behave, and because of that, here's what you should believe. But he never does that because such a notion is nonsense. Wouldn't that be like literally pharisaical? Right? Isn't that what the Pharisees did? I'm going to follow this set of rules that restrict how I behave and as a result of what I've done, how I behave, I'm going to be, I'm going to believe that I'm righteous. What do you believe? If you believe that this is the word of God for you, if you really believe it, then let's pay attention to it over the, the coming weeks. Let's, let's read the rest of this letter. Let's do what it says to do. Otherwise, we might as well just admit, you know, I come to church to hear what the Bible says, but I don't really care what the Bible says because I don't really believe what it says. Fourth, there's no picking and choosing. It sort of goes along with the previous point. 
You can't get the order wrong. What you believe matters in how you behave, right? What you believe is going to be acted out in the way that you live. But the idea here is that you either take it all or you take nothing. Really, when it comes to your approach to Scripture, those are the only two spiritually and intellectually honest options. You either believe it all or you don't believe any of it. Alistair Begg recently said, if you simply choose the parts of the Bible you like and reject the parts that you don't like, then you don't believe the Bible, you believe yourself. And that is so true. You either accept this all as God's word and authority, or you reject little bits and pieces of it, but in the process, you have made yourself the authority over Scripture. You don't really believe it. Here's how that standard applies to what we're saying in Ephesians here. There's there's doctrine in the first three chapters, and then there's these practical commands in the final three. You either take it all or you reject it all. But you know how people are. You know how we tend to be. We want to embrace one extreme in order to ignore the other extreme that's inconvenient to us. For some people, that means studying the word, getting into doctrine, right? I know chapters one through three, backward and forward. I deal with the hard questions. I've found out all the answers. Oh, I'm, I'm doctrinally sound. I, I know theology. You're not going to stump me. Go ahead and ask me if God could make a rock so big that even himself couldn't lift it. I'm ready to give you an answer. All right, but do your answers actually lead you to do anything? Or do you think living your life in a sense of biblical superiority is walking worthy of your calling? It's not. You can have all the right doctrine, and if it never impacts the way that you live your life, then something is dramatically wrong. On the other extreme, those are, there are those who would be happier just being handed a, a set of rules. Right? Give them a set of rules. Just conform to this and you're good. And then they live in confidence that they have the conscious smile of God on their life because they, they dress the right way and they talk the right way and they act the right way. Don't teach me anything. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Is that a mature expression of love of Christ? Listen to what Paul says to the Colossians in a a very similar text where he speaks of walking worthy, but that walk should not and cannot happen without also growing in knowledge. These, These things go together. Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10, he says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. See how how knowledge, knowing, right? Learning doctrinal things 
and living out, walking worthy, these have to go together. What do you think? Is, is it okay for you to have a, a set of rules to live and say, well, I'm a good boy, I'm a good girl? Never bother with doctrine? Never increase in knowledge? Never know why it is that you behave the way you behave? And for that matter, what's the point in gaining knowledge if you don't put it into practice? What you believe determines how you behave, and you need both. You don't get to pick and choose between one. You don't get to say, oh, I'm a doctrinally based Christian. Oh, I, I am a practically based Christian. We have to be both. Both. Finally, there's no ignoring this calling. Now, I know that in verse 1, Paul uses the word beseech, which means to urge or implore, and it's, it's right on the verge of, of begging, and yet he does not write this in a way that he leaves it open to your personal choice. He, his appeal to walk worthy is an emotional appeal because of the doctrine that he's taught, the truth of God's word, demands that you act on it. If you remember back in Acts chapter 20, Paul addressed the elders of this church at Ephesus in this farewell address in Acts chapter 20. And he reminded them that he had spent years teaching them doctrine and in those years also appealed to them to embrace the doctrine in the way they live. To remind you, here's what he said in Acts 20 verse 27. I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God, right? I've, I've taught you the doctrine. But then just four verses later, he says, therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Very simply, Paul said, look, I, I, I taught you everything. I didn't hold anything back. And then I tearfully appeal that you take the truth seriously. You, you live it. And so as we go through Ephesians chapter four through six, are you going to take it seriously? Are you willing to live for Christ when it goes beyond, you know, showing up in a pew for a few hours and it demands that you change and, and live your entire life conforming to him? Even though Paul makes it an appeal, he does not present it as something that's Optional. In fact, he's pretty clear about the choice that lays ahead of us. He uses this word walk, or really in Greek, peripateo is the word, and it means live or how you conduct your life. But he uses, he uses this word in verse 1, right? I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called. So he uses it as this appeal, I urge you to do this, but then he picks up that word again later on in the chapter in verse 17. Look at what he says in verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. If you won't walk worthy of your calling, then the other option is that you are going to walk like the rest of the world walks. You're going to have a manner of life that's just like everybody else. And he describes what that walk, what that manner of life is, really through the next several verses after verse 17. But 
But for this morning, the final phrase in verse 17 will suffice. He says that walk is in the vanity of their minds. You know, we think of the word vanity as if it means conceited or arrogant. And it can mean that. But biblically, the word means empty, fruitless, futile. It is futility to think, well, I know this church, this, this says the church is to maintain unity, but I'm going to pull away from the church because that's more convenient for me. That's empty. It's, it's useless thinking. It's vain to say, well, this tells a husband to love his wife, but Paul did not know that woman that I married. I am not going to do that. It's fruitless for a wife to say, well, all that talk about submission to a husband, that's just antiquated ideas of centuries past. I know better. When children dishonor their parents, when when servants disrespect their masters, when employers are stingy toward their workers, it's, it's all the same. Rejecting this book is the response of a vain walk, an empty manner of life. It is a futile way to conduct your life. If you've rejoiced in the doctrine that Paul has taught in chapters one through three, then you ought to embrace the practical matters that that sort of flow out of those doctrines in chapters four through six. You, in the life that God draw you to in faith, you have a calling. It's not safe. Your calling in Christ is risky. It's dangerous. It's, it's countercultural. And how you live out this calling is going to invariably be based on what it is you really believe. You are going to behave the way you believe. And living in righteousness for Christ is the command of Scripture. It is not some a la carte option that you can choose to add or choose to leave off. May God help us individually and collectively to walk worthy of the calling to which Christ has called us.